Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is um, this is William Fink, and this is Krista Genier on Talk Show. And it is okay. My watch says it's June thirty first. It, it's Friday, July first, two thousand and eleven. Half of the year is gone already. It's incredible. It's the time's just flying. I don't I don't believe how fast that the time is going by. I mean, a lot of people like to, um, I don't know if it's old age or if a lot of people like to say that the, the days are speeding up, and, and yes, they seem to be, but, but I remember when I was a child, my old man always said that when you get my age, the years are going to go by real quick, and I couldn't imagine it, but they do. Okay, last week we we covered um, Matthew chapter 13 here, the parables of the wheat and the tares, and the parable of the king of, of the net, and, and the kingdom of heaven, and and of course the net is cast into the sea and pulls up fish of every race. Yet among all those races of fish, there's only one good race, and they're the sheep fish. And that's about all I'm going to recap from last week. People that don't understand that and they claim to be Christian identity are lying. They're really Catholic universalists in disguise. So with that, I'll get right into Matthew chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch had heard the report of Joshua. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. And for this reason, works of power operate in him. This is the first time that we've seen the name Herod since Matthew chapter 2. But this is not the same Herod. There were ten different men. Well, I don't know if it's neat to call them men. There were ten different men named Herod, all of the same family of Edomites, who are identified in the index to Whiston's works of Josephus as being discussed by Josephus in his histories. Ten different Herods, all of the same family. The first Herod, who we saw in Matthew chapter 2, the Jews like to call him Herod the Great, right? He's better known as the usurping murderer of the Hasmoneans and the son of the Edomite Antipater. He died just a short time after the birth of Christ, probably about 1 or 2 BC. He was succeeded by his son, Herod Archelaus. And Herod Archelaus was so cruel that after only a few years, the Romans took the kingdom away from him and exiled him to Vienna, which at that time was in Gaul. That's what they called it. From that point on, Judea was split into four pieces, and the rulers were called tetrarchs, and they were set over those four pieces. A tetrarch is a ruler of a fourth. That's what the word means. This Herod here, Herod the Tetrarch, his name is actually Herod Antipas. He's another son of the first Herod, Herod the, the, the well, Herod the usurper. And he and his brother Philip each received a tetrarchy from Rome when their older half-brother 
was banished by the Romans and, and exiled. Herod Antipas was tetrarch over Galilee and Perea. Perea was just east of the Jordan. It was the other side of the Jordan from um, from Jerusalem above the Dead Sea. And, and the apostles never call it Perea in, in the New Testament. They always basically call it the other side of the Jordan. <laughs> Philip was the tetrarch of Golanitis, Trachonitis, and Panea, and, and they were all districts which were north of Perea and, and east of the Sea of Galilee. Sometime after Philip's death, another Herod, Herod Agrippa, was by the Emperor Caligula made a king of Philip's tetrarchy, since Philip left no sons. Herod Agrippa was the grandson of the first Herod by Aristobulus. Aristobulus was a son of Herod's whom he put to death, but Aristobulus left grandchildren. It's Herod the Tetrarch, however, Herod Antipas, Philip's brother Herod, who was the Herod that had his brother's wife, which we see in, in the Gospel here. And he is the Herod which is so prominent in the Gospels during the ministry of Christ. When John the, Bra when John the Baptist upbraided Herod for taking Philip's wife as his own, Philip was still alive. And, and Josephus explains that in Antiquities, Book 18, Chapter 5. This Herod the Tetrarch was later banished to Spain by Caligula, who was the emperor from 37 to 41 AD. So we have one Herod banished to Vienna and another Herod banished to Spain. Herod the Tetrarch's Tetrarchy was added to the kingdom of Herod Agrippa when he was banished. So Herod Agrippa ended up with both the Tetrarchies of Philip and of Herod the Tetrarch in his power. It is Herod Agrippa whose death is described in Acts chapter 12, when the people imagined him to be a god, and, and he not denying it, was he, he fell dead, being eaten by worms, as the account in Acts describes it. The family of Herod is, well, it's very confusing. They were all adulterers of one sort or another. And they married their own nieces, and they married their own first cousins very often. They married their brothers' wives, and they typically used only a handful of names across the generations. There were ten men referred to as Herod in Josephus' history, and there were six women referred to with the name Bernice or Bernice in Josephus' history, all of that same family. There are basically four men with the name Herod in the New Testament. These are Herod the usurper, the first Herod, alive at the birth of Christ. Herod the Tetrarch, who was prominent during the ministry of Christ. Herod Agrippa, who we see in Acts chapter 12 
And Herod Agrippa II, at the end of Acts, who is called only Agrippa and not Herod in the account given there, the son of Herod Agrippa. The last Herod had an incestuous relationship with the Bernice, who is mentioned along with him in that account of Acts. I believe it's Acts chapters 25 and 26. Bernice was his sister and not, in the civil sense, his wife, but they did have a husband-wife relationship on top of their brother-sister relationship. Here in this passage, we see that Herod the Tetrarch was quite superstitious, but that he believed in the possibility of resurrection, and therefore also in a continuance of the spirit after death. And, and that's telling because it's therefore not likely that he followed the Sadducees, even though he was an Edomite and, and a man from a wealthy pat family. And the Sadducees were, as Josephus describes them, they were the priests favored by the wealthy people, most of them being Canaanite Edomites, in Judea. And the Sadducees rejected the idea of the spiritual world. They rejected the spirit living after death. They, they rejected the idea of angels and, and a few other related ideas or beliefs. So it's not likely that Herod was really a follower of the Sadducees. That the Sadducees were the high priests at the time it is um, fully evident in Josephus and in Acts chapter 5. Matthew chapter 14, verse 3. For Herod, having seized John, meaning John the Baptist, and bound and put him away in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of Philip, his brother. For John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And therefore Herod, well, well Herodias, I'm sorry, Herod desiring to kill him, he had feared the crowd because they held him as a prophet. They held John as a prophet. The, the law which John the Baptist refers to is Leviticus 18.16, Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife, it is thy brother's nakedness. And if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing, he uncovers his brother's nakedness, they shall be childless is what it says at Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21. Matthew 14, verse 6. But with the birthday feast of Herod coming to pass, the daughter of Herodias danced in the midst and pleased Herod, from which he had promised with an oath to give her whatever she may ask. And being induced by her mother... Give to me, she says, here upon a plate, the head of John the Baptist. And the king, grieving because of the oaths, and those reclining together, meaning those dining with him, commanded it to be provided. And sending, he beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought upon a plate and given to the girl. Pretty macabre, huh? Only a Jewish family could do something like this. And she brought it to her mother. And having gone forth, his students took the body and buried him, and having come, reported it to Yahshua. 
And hearing it, Yahshua withdrew from there in the vessel to a desert place by himself. And crowds hearing it followed him on foot from the cities. And coming out, he saw a great crowd, and he was deeply moved by them, and he healed their sick. Herodias was not only the former wife of Philip, who is this Herod the Tetrarch's brother, but she was also their half-niece, the daughter of the Aristobulus, who the first Herod had put to death, his own son, right? And she was the full sister of Herod Agrippa I, who came to rule over Herod and Philip's dominions. So, so the whole Herod family, uh, I, it's very confusing. It, it's very confusing to follow in Josephus if you're not careful. Herod the Tetrarch and Philip were both sired by the first Herod, Herod the Usurper, I'll call him, with Mariam. Mariam was the daughter of Hyrcanus, the last high priest of the Hasmonean dynasty, and Herod killed him too. In fact, Herod killed Mariam, too. It's amazing that the man whom the Jews loved to call Herod the Great gained his kingdom by bribery and treachery, and it killed both several of his sons, his wife, his father-in-law, and many hundreds or perhaps thousands of other people. He killed all the principal men of Judea after he killed Hyrcanus to, to usurp the kingdom, and then he bribed he bribed Mark Antony with silver to go and, 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 and try to get him made king of Judea, and, and of course that worked. He also had an affair with the same Cleopatra with whom Julius Caesar had an affair. So basically, this wife that um, Philip and Herod were passing around was also... Um, their niece. If you don't get the picture by now, the family of Herod's was basically shaped like, the family tree was basically shaped like a long two-by-four. It went straight up. Here is what Josephus wrote of the death of John. After Herod had gone to war against Aratus, the king of Arabia, and he suffered defeat. Now, some of the Judeans thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that, very justly, as a punishment of what he did against John, who was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, and, and who commanded the Judeans to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism, or that the washing with water would be acceptable to him if they made use of it, not in order to the putting away or the remission of some sins only, but for the purification of the body, supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. So if Josephus, if John really believed this, or, or if um, or if Josephus is projecting this onto John, what we see that Josephus believes in the predestination of the pure soul. 
Now, when many others came in crowds about him, for they were greatly moved or pleased by hearing his words, Herod, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people might be might put it into his power and inclination to raise a rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise. Herod thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when it should be too late. In other words, he, Josephus is saying that Herod thought John was going to lead a rebellion. Accordingly, he was sent a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, the castle I before mentioned, and was there put to death. Now the Jews, Judeans had an opinion that the destruction of this army, which was sent against the Arabians, was sent as a punishment upon Herod and a mark of God's displeasure against him. The Romans, as Josephus goes on to describe, then sent Vitellius, with two legions against Aratus, king of Arabia. Now, it should be evident that the, the Josephus account, which is written perhaps 60 years after these things actually happened, is revisionist in the reason which he gave for Herod's having killed John. And, and I believe that it may well have been that this was the excuse later used by Herod, who was clearly, according to the Gospel account, embarrassed at the circumstances under which he had to put John to death. And we need not look on either version as suspect or even totally dishonest. I mean, of course, the Bible, that the New Testament version given by Matthew, is the truth. But what we actually see, I believe, is the difference between an eyewitness account and a political history, much like we see all the time written today, where accounts of events are spun in order to suit those in power. And, and that's the way I look at Josephus's account of the death of John the Baptist. It's just political spin to suit Herod, and, and that's what was handed down to the historians. Matthew 14, verse 15. Now, it becoming late, the students came forth to him, saying, The place is a desert, and the time has already passed. Release the crowds in order that, departing into the villages, they may buy food for themselves. But Yahshua said to them, They have no need to depart. You give to them to eat. Then they say to him, we have not here except five loaves and two fish. But he, meaning Yahshua, said, bring them here to me, and commanding the crowds to recline upon the grass, taking the loaves, the five loaves and the two fish, looking up into heaven, he blessed and having broke them, gave the loaves to the students and the students to the crowds, and they all ate and were filled. And they took the excess of fragments, the leftovers, filling 12 baskets. Now, those men eating were about 5,000 besides women and children. So we see perhaps 10,000 people. 
This event is also described in Mark chapter 6, in Luke chapter 9, and in John chapter 6. It's in all four Gospels. There's a similar event which is described in Matthew chapter 15, we will read tonight, and in Mark chapter 8. There's no precise Old Testament prophecy of this miracle, that there's only mentions of the feeding of, of the children of Israel in the desert, references back to the feeding of them with the manna in the wilderness, right? There is an Old Testament precedent for this miracle, aside from the manna in the wilderness, and that's at 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42. And there came a man from Baal-Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and full ears of corn, and the husk thereof. And he said, Give unto the people that they may eat. And his servitor said, the man who was going to serve this for him said, what should I set this before? What, what should I set this before a hundred men? In, in other words, this isn't as an extreme, an example of this miracle as we see with Christ and, and the five thousand men and women and children. But, but it is that, that there's not enough food here to really feed a hundred men with, according to the servant here. He said again, "Give the people." that they may eat, for thus saith Yahweh, they shall eat and shall leave thereof, meaning that there will be leftovers. So he said it before them, and they did eat and left thereof, according to the word of Yahweh. So we see that a large group of people were somehow filled, and there were leftovers from a relatively small amount of food. And that event is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 4. There were certainly women and children also with those hundred men, as there were with the 5,000, I, I would be safe to assume. These examples, I believe, are here so that we know that if indeed God wants us to eat, then we shall eat and we shall have plenty. The manna in the desert did not fail our fathers for 40 years. The woman of Zarephath, who comforted Elijah, ate for many days from a small amount of meal and a flask of oil, while there was a great famine in the land, because it did not rain for quite some time. It says at 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 16, that the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruse of oil fail, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by Elijah. When Elijah met the woman, the barrel contained but a handful of meal. Christ tells us in Luke chapter 12, verse 22, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for your body, what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body more than raiment or clothing. We should believe him, our God, shall provide for us in the hardest of times. The same event where Yahshua had fed 5,000 people 
5,000 men, from a few loaves and two fish. And then he walked on water to catch up with his disciples, as we're going to read in this chapter. The same event is also recorded in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 6. John's Gospel is written from a very different perspective. And John recorded some things which happened afterward, which Matthew did not record here. And among those things is the great bread of life discourse. Here is part of the conversation from John, which Matthew did not include here. Chapter 6, verse 22 of John. On the next day, the crowd which stood across the sea had seen that there was not another boat there except one, and that Yahshua had not entered together with his students into the vessel, but only his students had departed. But vessels came from Tiberias near the place where they ate the bread, giving thanks to Yahweh. Therefore, when the crowd had seen that Yahshua is not there, nor his students, they themselves boarded into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Yahshua. And finding him across the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you arrive here? We are about to read Matthew's description of the account where Yahshua walked on the water to meet his disciples. But first, Yahshua's response. Well, I'll read up from verse 26 of John 6, upon their questioning him. Yahshua replied to them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you have seen signs, but because you have eaten of the loaves and have been satiated or filled. You must work not for that food which perishes, but for that food which abides for eternal life which the Son of Man shall give to you. Indeed, Yahweh the Father has confirmed him. If we seek the food which abides for eternal life, he shall provide for us the food which perishes, which is our daily bread. Verse 28 of John 6. Then they said to him, What should we do that we may accomplish the works of Yahweh? Yahshua replied and said to them, This is the work of Yahweh, that you would believe in him whom he sent. As Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, believing in Yahshua includes believing in all of his words, right? John chapter 6 verse 30. Then they said to him, Then what sign do you do in order that we would see and we may believe in you? What could you accomplish? Our fathers ate the manor in the desert, just as it is written, bread from heaven he had given them to eat. John here seeks to demonstrate to us their argumentativeness. They either saw, and, and Christ said that they ate the manor in the desert, or perhaps maybe some of them, he's talking to a lot of people here, only heard the accounts of how he had just fed 5,000 people from so little food. And now with these questions that they're posing, they're challenging him for another sign. It's like how many signs do they need, right? They seem to be saying to him, big deal, our fathers ate manna in the desert, as if it's an attempt to, as if they're attempting to belittle what he had done. Verse 32. 
Then Yahshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses did not give to you bread from heaven, and Moses didn't give it to them, right? But my Father gives to you the true bread from heaven. The bread fell from the sky, right? These people who were questioning Yahshua sought their righteousness from the laws of Moses alone and not from God. Verse 33. For the bread of Yahweh is he descending from heaven and giving life to the society, meaning the society which he had created and not the society which had been corrupted by the adversary. Verse 34. Then they said to him, Prince, Always give to us this bread. Yahshua said to them, I am the bread of life. He coming to me shall not hunger, and he believing in me shall not ever thirst. But I have said to you that even you have seen me, and you do not believe. Each whom the Father gives to me shall come to me, and he coming to me I shall not cast outside. Because I have descended from heaven not in order that I would do that of my will, but the will of he who has sent me. This is the will of he who has sent me, that each of them who are given to me I shall not destroy. There are no bad sheep. But I shall resurrect them in the last day. This describes all of Israel, and then all of the other Adamic nations to follow. They're all blessed in Abraham's seed, every Adamite. Verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that each who seeing the Son and believing in him would have eternal life. And as Peter described that Christ preached the gospel to those, even to those who had died before the flood. And I shall resurrect him in the last day. Matthew 14, verse 22. And immediately he compelled the students to board into the vessel and to go ahead of him to the other side, until when he would release the crowds. They had just finished eating the loaves and the fishes, right? And releasing the crowds, he went up into the mountain by himself to pray. And it becoming late, he was there alone. So we see that the crowds saw that there was no other boat and that's what John describes at 622 of his gospel. He's explaining that these people knew there was no boat. They knew that the apostles left in the only boat that was there. And that's how they wondered how Yahshua got to where they had walked. Because they knew that he didn't come with them, right? Back to um, Tiberius. And releasing the crowds, he went up into the mountain by himself to pray. And it becoming late, he was there alone. And the vessel was already many stades away from the land. A stade is a Greek measurement, which is about an eighth of a mile, I think. It might be a sixth. And being tried by the waves, for there was an opposing wind. And in the fourth watch of the night, which is between approximately 3 and 6 o'clock a.m. on our clocks, he came to them walking upon the sea. And the students seeing him walking upon the sea were troubled, saying that 
it is an apparition, and they tried and they cried out from fear. But immediately Yahshua spoke to them, saying, "Have courage, it is I. Do not fear." Yes, the Greeks believed in apparitions, in ghosts. Then responding to him, Peter said, Prince, is it you? If it is you, bid for me to come to you upon the waters. And he said, Come. And descending from the vessel, Peter walked upon the waters and came to Joshua. But seeing the wind, he feared, and beginning to sink, cried out, saying, Prince, save me. Then immediately Yahshua, extending the hand, took hold of him and says to him, You of little faith, for what reason do you doubt? And upon their ascending into the vessel, the wind abated. Then those in the vessel worshipped him, saying, You truly are a son of Yahweh. I may have read this following passage discussing Matthew chapter 8 where Christ was asleep on a boat and the disciples woke him up in fear of the storm, but I did not, so I will read it here now. Here is Psalm 107, verses 28 to 30, from the Septuagint. Then they cry to, to the Lord in their affliction, and he brings them out of their distresses, and he commands the storm, and it is calmed into a gentle breeze, and its waves are still. And they are glad, because they are quiet, and he guides them to their desired haven. There is no prophecy of Christ walking on water that I have ever found, but there are some poetic references in prophecy to Yahweh doing the same thing. Psalm 77, verse 19, Thy way is in the sea, and thy path in the great waters, and thy footsteps are not known. Job 9, 8, which alone spreads out the heavens and treads upon the waves of the sea, in reference to God. And Isaiah 43:16, Thus saith Yahweh, who makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. So by walking on the water, I believe that Christ again shows us that indeed he is God in the flesh. He also shows us, I believe, that we too will overcome the physical world if indeed we follow him, as he told us in Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Matthew 14, verse 34. And crossing over, they came upon the land at Gennesaret. And recognizing him, the men of that place sent into that whole surrounding region, and they brought to him all those being ill, and exhorted him that they may only touch the border of his garment, and as many who touched it recovered. The word Gennesaret is apparently the Hellenized form of the Hebrew word Kinnereth or Kinneroth, which was an Old Testament town of the tribe of Naphtali, and it was the same as the Old Testament name for the Sea of Galilee, which was the Sea of Kinneroth, 
Joshua chapter 12, verse 3, for example. The town was on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee itself was called Lake Tiberias by the Romans. We see in Luke chapter 8, the woman who had the flow of blood for 12 years, who also believed that she would be healed if only she touched the border of the garment of Christ. And she was. Matthew chapter 15. Then the Pharisees and scribes came forth from Jerusalem to Yahshua, saying, For what reason do your students transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash the hands when they eat bread. And replying, he said to them, For what reason then do you transgress the commandment of Yahweh by your tradition? For Yahweh said, Honor the father and mother. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, or Deuteronomy 5.16. And he speaking evil of father or mother must die the sentence of death. Exodus 21.17 and Leviticus 20, verse 9. But you say, whoever should say to father or mother, whatever you benefit from me is a gift, shall by no means honor his father, and you have made void the word of Yahweh by your tradition. Let me quote Proverbs 28.24, which is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. Whoever robs his father or mother and says, it is no transgression, the same is the companion of a destroyer. Verse 7, the words of Christ. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophecy concerning you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And vainly do they worship me, teaching for education the commandments of men. I'll quote Isaiah 29.13. That's where the quote is from. Wherefore Yahweh says, For as much as this people draws near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. It's a little different in the Masoretic text than Christ quoted it in the New Testament. I would bet the Jews probably corrupted the verse. First, and and this was an example, right? The laws of God should govern us all, and they are an absolute, absolutely necessary component of Christian civilization. However, in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 8, and I will quote it from the NAS, Yahweh says, How can you say we are wise, and the law of Yahweh is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The Pharisees, aside from having poorly transcribed laws, the Pharisees had traditions which they claimed were developed from an obviously imperfect law, yet they were really the artificial elaborations of men 
And there is no real proof that the tradition of the elders was really the tradition of the Hebrew elders. They may well have been the traditions of the elders of the ancient Edomites, which the Pharisees only claimed had been from Moses. Since some of their practices to this very day seem to be quite alien to the Old Testament. So I doubt the origin of the tradition of the elders from the Old Testament, but Scripture does not ask or answer that question, right? On another note, it's obvious that the letter of the Old Testament law is corrupted in at least some places, and since the law was never meant to cover every situation which a man should face by its letter alone, it is by the example set in the Old Testament and by the words of God throughout the Scripture that we should seek guidance from in order to govern our lives and not from the letter of the law alone. There is a parenthetical statement explaining the position of the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Mark writes, For the Pharisees and all the Judeans, if they do not wash the hands to the elbow, they do not eat, holding to the tradition of the elders. And from the marketplace, if they do not rinse, meaning rinse whatever food they bought, they do not eat. And there are many other things which they undertook to hold to, washings of cups and pitchers and pots. So we see, even in minor things, that the Pharisees sought to regulate life to the extreme. We have many of these same legalists among us today, especially in our government bureaucracies. However, even in our own Christian identity community, there are those who seek to rule over their brethren with the letter of the law and inject themselves into aspects of their lives where they do not belong. We should avoid legalism. Yes, if your brother is sinning before you, correct him. If your unrepentant brother is harming members of your community, then you should almost certainly eject him from the community so that he no longer harms the members of the community. Other than that, you really shouldn't try to rule over your brother with the law, lest you become a Pharisee. We're not to be judged by the law. We're to be judged by grace. The law is our ideal. We should all seek to live up to it. There are going to be plenty of times when each of us fail. Matthew 15, verse 10. And calling to the crowd, he said to them, You hear and understand, that which goes into the mouth does not defile the man, but that coming out from the mouth, this defiles the man. Now, a lot of really silly people, and perhaps a lot of outright deceivers, have over the years turned this statement into an insistence that Christ would advocate the consumption of poisons as an act of faith, or the eating of swine or many other things which are obviously not fit to eat. But in context, 
Here, Christ is talking only about food. The Pharisees were taking the law to extremes. So insistent the man must not consume a speck of dirt or a mite or a gnat that they sought to regulate their entire lives with strict commandments. Christ is simply telling them that a little dirt really does not matter, and that such is not why the law was given in the first place. Likewise, it is recorded in Matthew chapter 23 that he called these same Pharisees blind guides, straining out the gnat, but swallowing the camel. Matthew 15, chapter 12, I'm sorry, verse 12. Then the students, having come forth to him, said, Do you know that the Pharisees are offended, hearing the word? Then he replying said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be uprooted. Leave them alone, they are blind leaders, and if the blind should lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. As John the Baptist said, announcing the coming of Christ, the axe is already laid to the root of the trees, plural trees. It can be clearly ascertained in the Bible and in history that many of the Pharisees and other members of the ruling class in Jerusalem were Canaanite, Edomites, and not Israelites. Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted tells us that there are people here which Yahweh did not create. This is why Yahweh lamented, as it is recorded in Jeremiah chapter 2, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? This is also one reason why Christ said, as we saw last week in Matthew chapter 13, that the kingdom of the heavens is like a net having been cast into the sea, and it gathers from out of every race, which when it is full, Bringing up on the shore and sitting, they gather the good ones into vessels, but the rotten ones they cast out. The only race that the Bible records Yahweh is having explicitly planted is the Adamic race. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which are the fallen angels, were already here when Adam was created. Genesis chapter 3 proves that out. They were engaged in miscegenation, which is race mixing, from the beginning, from the time that they left their first estate. That's how they became fallen angels. And possibly even long before the time of Adam, as is apparently evident in some of the Enoch literature. The archaeological records surely cannot be used to disagree with this interpretation and can rather be used to support it. The parable of the net certainly indicates that the only the Adamic race is left in the end, 
as do several other parables and other scriptures in the New Testament. For only the Adamic race can be the wheat of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Only the Adamic race can be the sheep in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Only members of the Adamic race can be the sons in Paul's statements concerning sons and bastards. The rest of the people in the world, the every race of the parable of the net, or the all nations of the parable of the sheep and the goats, can only fit into the non-sheep category. As the Apostle John explains in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, there are people who are the children of God who came from God. And there are people who are of the world, meaning that their origin is found in the world. They did not come from God. Since God created all things and the world can create nothing of its own, then those who came from the world must be violations of kind after kind, which can only come from miscegenation. We cannot give God credit, in other words, we cannot blame God, for transgression, and all miscegenation is transgression. Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. In the end, there are only sheep. Verse 15. Then responding, Peter said to him, Elucidate the parable for us. And he said, Still also are you without understanding. Do you not perceive that everything going into the mouth is contained in the belly and cast out into the latrine? But the things coming out from the mouth come out from the heart. And these things defile the man. For from out of the heart come evil arguments, murders, acts of adultery, acts of fornication, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies, these are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands would not defile the man. The imaginings which come from the heart of man do much more to defile him than the eating of some dirt or a gnat. The Pharisees cared more about regulating the minute details of life than they did for gaining a true understanding of the scriptures. Verse 21. And having departed from there, Yahshua withdrew into the regions of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from those borders, having come out, cried out, saying, Pity me, Master, son of David. My sick daughter is possessed by a demon. But he did not respond to her a word. And coming forth, his students begged him, saying, Dismiss her. For she cries out from behind us. Then replying, he said, I have not been sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she coming makes obeisance to him, saying, Master, help me. But he responding said, It is not good to take the bread of the children and cast it to the little dogs. Then she said, Yes, Master. Yet the little dogs eat from the crumbs, falling from the table of their masters. 
Note that the little dogs eat from the crumbs falling from the table. Many people, even in Christian identity, they want to take the food out of the hands of the children and throw it under the table. Verse 28. Then replying, he said to her, O woman, great is your belief. It must be for you as you desire. And her daughter had been healed from that moment. Before beginning to explain this account, it must be understood that this woman was indeed a Canaanite. There should be no doubt. A lot of people in identity don't understand this account, so they go to great lengths to turn this woman into an Israelite or, or a, one of the lost Israelites, and, and maybe Matthew only thought she was a Canaanite, at, at, as if Matthew didn't know better. Mark calls the woman in his version of the account a Syrophoenician. Syrophoenician is not a Greek ethnic description. It's only a geographical description. Mark also calls her a Greek. But neither is Greek, at this time, an ethnic description. Greek is a cultural description. The Greeks did not call themselves Greeks. But rather, they called themselves after their tribes or their districts. They used the word Hellene to describe people who acclimated themselves and embraced or were born into and raised up in the Greek language and the Greek culture. But the term Hellene actually comprised, described many different Greek ethnic tribes. The Danan Greeks could claim to be Hellenes, but by race they were Danans. The Dorian Greeks could claim to be Hellenes, but by race they were Dorians. The Athenian Greeks could claim to be Hellenes, but by race they were Ionians. So Greek is a cultural description. Matthew, a Hebrew, identifies the woman as a Canaanite. The word Canaanite is a word virtually unknown to the Greeks. It's not in the lexicons. It'll be in the Bible lexicons, but it won't be in the secular lexicons, except as a strictly Bible word. Canaanite was not an ethnic, nor was it a geographical description in use in the first century A.D. The Greeks knew of Syrians and Edomians and Arabians in the Levant, Palestine. They knew of the Judeans, but the Greeks did not know of Canaanites. Therefore, Matthew must be identifying the woman from a racial perspective. The Greeks were not aware of the Canaanite race as a distinct entity, except for the few passages found in the Septuagint referring to events of antiquity. A Greek that was not familiar with Hebrew literature and with the Hebrew translation of the Bible called the Greek Septuagint, right, would not know the term Canaanite. 
However, the Hebrews were aware of Canaanites, and they could make an accurate distinction, being much more intimate with them. So by race, this woman is clearly a Canaanite. Here in the account of Christ and the Canaanite woman, we have a model of the suppliant recognizing and beseeching a powerful man. The concept of the suppliant was a very important one in the ancient world. And we in modern times have lost it in the mechanization of bureaucracy. A suppliant or a supplicant is today in English merely one who makes humble, a humble, earnest, and expectantly sincere plea for something from someone else. But in the ancient world, the idea of a suppliant had a strong religious connotation attached to it. Those leaders and rulers who refused reasonable requests by suppliants were seen as cruel and as inviting the wrath of the gods or God, depending on your outlook, pagan or Hebrew, upon themselves. Suppliants often acted in desperation. They often carried olive branches as a sign of their humbled estate. Sometimes they even wore garments of mourning. And they threw themselves, generally, they threw themselves at the feet of some ruler or general, or, or even at the feet of an altar, often grasping the garment of the one they sought favor from, and they begged earnestly for that mercy that they wished to receive. The Greek tragic poets very often portrayed suppliants in their plays. Euripides wrote a play, Suppliant Women, and the Aeschylus did likewise, entitled Suppliant Maidens. Both of those stories are accounts of the Danans, who had come from Egypt to Argos in ancient Greece. The opening line of the Aeschylus' version from the Loeb Classical Library reads thus, a chorus of Danan women doing the talking, and I quote, May Zeus, who guards suppliants, of his grace look upon our company that took ship and put to sea from the outmost land of fine sand at the outlets of the Nile. The suppliant was very often a subject of Greek poetry and of Greek history, whether the suppliant be at the feet of a general, a king, an ancient hero, or the altar of a pagan idol. I'm going to read a few passages from Greek histories, well, from Livy and, and from Plato and from the Iliad, or the Odyssey, which are related to suppliants, so that we understand the picture of the suppliant in the ancient world. From Plato, Laws, Book 5, on suppliants. In his relations to stranger, a man should consider that a contract is a most holy thing, and that all concerns and wrongs of strangers are more directly dependent on the protection of God than wrongs done to citizens. For the stranger, having no kindred and friends, is more to be pitied by gods and men. And let me say that the Greek 
um, culture of caring for suppliants and strangers was very, very strong and probably comes from their Hebrew background. And on many occasions in the Old Testament, it tells that the Hebrews are commanded to be kind to strangers, for you were strangers. in the land of Egypt. To continue with Plato, wherefore also he who is most able to avenge him is most zealous in his cause, and he who is most able is the genius and the god of the stranger, god with a small g there, right? Who follows in the train of Zeus, the god of strangers. And for this reason, he who has a spark of caution in him will do his best to pass through life without sinning against the stranger. And of offenses committed, whether against strangers or fellow countrymen, that against suppliance is the greatest. But a God who witnessed to the agreement made with the suppliant becomes in a special manner the guardian of the sufferer, and he will certainly not suffer unavenged. Well, Christ isn't, of course, beholden to a Canaanite to make a contract with a Canaanite. He's not obliged to do that. However, my point here is to give the cultural background what which permeated the minds of all of the people brought up in that culture. And, and this had a very strong impression on Greek culture and on Hebrew culture. This is how those people lived and how they regarded people who were making supplications. They saw it very differently than we see it today. From Livy, the ancient Roman historian, here we shall see some references shedding light on the ancient concept of the suppliant. The History of Rome, Book 2, Chapter 14, describing a war between Rome and the Etruscans, which the Etruscans were, were losing very badly. By these means, the Etrurians, having almost gained the victory, were surrounded and cut to pieces, a very small part of them, their general being lost, and no place of safety nearby, made the best of their way to Rome without arms, and in their circumstances and appearance, merely like suppliants, they were kindly received and provided with lodgings. When their wounds were cured, some of them returned home and gave an account of the hospitality and kindness which they had experienced. A great number remained at Rome, induced by the regard which they had contracted for their lusts. I'm sorry, for their hosts. <laughs> I can't see. And for the city. They had, ground, they had ground allotted to them for building houses which was afterwards called the Tuscan Street. So the people of Rome gave these, these defeated soldiers who made supplication to them. They had pity and compassion on them and gave them a place to build homes uh, and, and kindness and, and hospitality and, and probably a lot, more, a lot more. They were provided with lodgings and, and cured their wounds. So, so we see that... Um, that the importance of the suppliant in the ancient world, that, that once that supplication is made, that, that they had a, um, a, a very strong urge and desire to grant 
mercy on the people who were making the supplication. From Livy, the History of Rome, Book 2, Chapter 14, of an event which took place during the Punic Wars. Hippocrates and Epicides, knowing them by their standards and the fashion of their armor, advanced to them, talking about Cretan soldiers, holding out olive branches and other emblems of suppliance, and besought them to receive them into their ranks, to protect them there, and not to betray them into the hands of the Syracusans, by whom they themselves would soon be delivered up to the Romans to be murdered. The Cretans immediately, with one voice, bade them keep up their courage, for they should share every fortune with them. In other words, they took these two escaped soldiers out of, and, and put them into their ranks and, and helped protect them. From Livy, the History of Rome, Book 45, Chapter 6, On the Defeat of Perseus, the King of Macedon, in a final military defeat at the hands of the Romans, at which he took refuge in the temple on Samothrace. And I quote, Then after uttering many execrations against fortune and against the gods to whom the temple belonged, for not affording aid to a suppliant, he, Perseus, surrendered himself and his son to Octavius. In other words, Perseus made supplication, having lost this battle, made supplication to the gods that he believed in at a temple and cursed them when his supplication was denied and he would fall prisoner to the Romans. From Homer's Odyssey, Book 9, Odysseus is addressing, addressing Alcanus, the president, uh, I'm sorry, the king of the Phahikians on the legendary island of Scaria. I'm butchering these words. We were frightened out of our senses by his loud voice and monstrous form, but I managed to say, we are Achaeans on our way home from Troy, but by the will of Zeus and stress of weather, we have been driven far out of our course. We are the people of Agamemnon, son of Atreus, who has won infinite renown throughout the world by sacking so great a city and killing so many people. We therefore humbly pray to you, to show us some hospitality, otherwise make us such presents as visitors may reasonably expect. May your excellency fear the wrath of heaven, for we are your suppliants, and Zeus takes all respectable travelers under his protection, for he is the avenger of all suppliants and foreigners in distress. Once we understand the importance which was placed on such supplications when somebody was in a time of need and, and became suppliance to a ruler or a leader or a king, then we can begin to understand the exchange between Yahshua and the Canaanite woman. And here I will repeat that passage from Matthew. And, and let me say as an aside, I don't have all the possible citations. That There are probably hundreds of, of instances in the Greek histories where a conquering general or a conquering king w would have suppliants lie prostrate at his feet, begging for some sort of mercy or for some, some, some um, 
gift or some alleviation from stress that was being caused by war or, or defeat in battle. And it was very rare that the wishes of suppliance, when they were reasonable, were not met. It, it's almost all the time clemency was granted. Uh, unless the suppliant was so vicious an enemy that he had no right to make his supplication. Uh, I mean, clemency was what was the rule and, and was not the exception. And having departed from there, Yahshua withdrew into the regions of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from those borders having come, cried out, saying, Pity me, master, son of David. My sick daughter is possessed by a demon. But he did not respond to her a word. And coming forth, his students begged of him, saying, Dismiss her, for she cries out from behind us. Then replying, he said, I have not been sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she, coming, makes obeisance to him, saying, Master, help me. But he responding said, It is not good to take the bread of the children and to cast it to the little dogs. Then she said, Yes, Master, yet the little dogs eat from the crumbs falling from the table of their masters. Then replying, Yahshua said to her, O woman, great is your belief. It must be for you as you desire and her daughter had been healed from that moment. I translate that word belief that appears as the word faith in the King James Version of the Bible. The word can be faith, but it is not a reference to the faith. The Greek word pistis is the word almost always translated as faith in the King James Version. Pistis is the common Greek word for faith, belief, assurance, or confidence. It is also in certain contexts, sometimes translated as credit, trust, or even honesty. Not every time that the word appears in Scripture does it refer to the saving faith which Israelites should have in Yahweh our God. That belief is a belief that we are the descendants of Abraham through Jacob and that Yahweh will save us all. That's a different belief than what the woman had. The woman believed that Christ was king. She agreed that he only came for Israel. She agreed that he was that she was a dog, and she believed that he could do what she had heard he could do. But that doesn't give her the faith of Abraham. It doesn't give her the faith that she would be saved. That's a totally different belief, which she admitted not being a part of. So when that word faith is thrown around, we have to think of what, the idea is underlying that word faith. 
Because a lot of Christians can profess to have faith, and when you ask them what they have faith in or why they have it, they really can't answer that. Yahshua did not desire to help the Canaanite woman. Even though by calling him the son of David, she recognized his legitimate claim as king, being the heir to the throne of David. He told her that his coming was for Israel exclusively and for nobody else. Of course, since Yahweh does not change, that is still true today. The woman was clearly unworthy of his attention. The apostles wanted to get rid of her. And they were never chastised for that attitude. Therefore, that attitude could not have been wrong. This woman is hardly a candidate for Christianity, right? But the woman nevertheless continued. She persisted and made obeisance to him, which means that she fell to his feet, prostrating herself before him and begging for his mercy. The woman, once having fully and evidently sincerely agreeing with all of Christ's statements, by all measures of mercy and clemency, it not really costing Yahshua anything to grant her wish, he was given little choice but to do so. Yahshua, we see, had always complied with the cultural norms of the time, and since it cost him nothing, like it also cost him nothing when Peter retrieved the coin from the mouth of the fish to pay the stranger tax, even though Yahshua knew that he should not have been paying the stranger's tax in Capernaum. The woman, while she was an enemy, she was also a supplicant, who recognized both his kingship and his purpose and had agreed with him fully while prostrating herself at his feet. Since it was also he who declared that the wheat and the tares must live together until the time of the end, he had little choice in the perspective of his own stated righteousness than to grant her wish as she desired. However, by his granting her wish, which was the healing of her daughter, that does not mean that she is granted salvation in the context of eternal life. She is still a dog. Her daughter is still a dog. And when the time of the end does come, they or their descendants are still going to be gathered and burned in the fire since they are still tares. Yahshua, obeying her supplication, obeying the, the um, traditions of the culture by granting a humble and obedient suppliant the clemency that they ask for, of which there are many, many descriptions all throughout Greek and Roman literature. That still does not transform her into a sheep. Verse 29. And passing over from there, Yahshua went by the Sea of Galilee, and ascending into the mountain, sat there, and there came to him 
many crowds having among themselves the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they cast them by his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wonders, seeing the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they honored the God of Israel. This is all in fulfillment of the prophecies in Isaiah concerning him, and when Christ Christ responded to the disciples of John, when they made the inquiry concerning him, he told them to go tell John that the blind see and the lame walk. In order to indicate to John that he is the coming Messiah. Verse 32. Then Yahshua, summoning his students, said, I am deeply moved by the crowd. Because already three days they remain with me, and they do not have anything to eat. And I do not wish to dismiss them fasting, or hungry, lest they should faint on the road. And the students say to him, From where for us in the desert are there so many loaves as to feed such a crowd? So we see the disciples still didn't get it, right? That he was going to produce the food. And Yahshua says to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And commanding the crowd to recline upon the ground, he took the seven wheat loaves and the fish, and blessing broke and gave them to the students, and the students to the crowds, and they all ate and were filled. And they took the excess of the fragments, again, we have a lot of leftovers, filling seven creels, fishing baskets. And those eating were 4,000 men besides women and children. And releasing the crowds, he boarded into a vessel and came to the regions of Magadan. This event is also recorded in Mark chapter 8. Again, Christ is the bread of life in the desert. as our fathers only had manna to live on for 40 years, we should choose only Christ and his word for our own sustenance. That's all I have for tonight. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next week with Matthew chapter 16. Praise Yahweh. Good night.